There are days that define your story beyond your life. Welcome to 5-Minute Arrival. The podcast where we look at the film Arrival five minutes at a time. I'm Robert. I'm Sarah. Any questions? What do they want? Where are they from? Why are they here? This is a priority. Our priority today is minutes 56 through 60, which continue Ian's narration out of nowhere and end with, uh, I guess, Ian and Louise's first date. Yeah, it's like an awkward nerd flirt in the truck. Yeah. <laughs> and with us, we have a guest, Molly Balin from Cabin Minute Cast and Escape from New York Minute. Yes. Welcome. Yay! <laughs> <laughs> we start with Louise with poster boards. Abbott writes something about himself because it says Abbott in the top left of the logogram. And Ian's narration continues. He left off in the middle of a sentence. What was it? Something about their ship. Oh, about their ship maybe being free of time. This is their ship or their bodies. Their written language has no forward or backward direction. Linguists call this nonlinear orthography, which we've already talked about. And we get Ian watching. We get a computer version of the logogram mapped in real time on a computer. On the official symbols, this is just labeled as heptapod writes real time, so it's not actually a definition. It just notes which one it is. There is, however, not the word heptapod in there, which is why I say it doesn't actually mean that. And there's not the label for time. The on-screen translation is interesting because it's adding lots of words. It lists see, find, understand, think, query, ask, truth, land, perch, ground, hold, choose, pick, take, accept, and search. So it's possible Abbott is just explaining that he came to Earth to find his truth. Mm. <laughs> Deep. No, so I, that was, <laughs> I, I have lots of questions. So that's, that's yeah. part of that. And I think in this, the beginning of this particular scene, I guess my question was like, how did they get, because there are these little like offshoot ink blobs. Yeah. So I, I mean, on, and obviously we, we jump forward in the story a little bit. So we go, you know, a little bit between like human and you know them identifying themselves to now we have this huge leap of understanding of all of these other little words built into you know the logograms and i was just you know wish there was just a little bit more context about how did we get there because that's a lot of complexity which is what they're saying that took like a month to get there you know and that is the entire basis for the short story Mm. the short story doesn't have a plot it's they're interacting with the aliens, and she keeps talking about her daughter. Mm. The movie needed a plot, and so they throw in some narration and speed everything up. Yeah. Now we're about to have a plot. <laughs> and we get more of this romance that yeah. interestingly goes along with what's happening with the aliens. I mean, just in this part right here, it's like next expanding vocabulary, and next we're going to get a date where they talk to each other more. Mm, I've seen yeah. a lot of the like, mirroring of what's going on in the plot with what's going on with yes with the haptopods Mm. so we continue the narration he says which raises the question is this how they think imagine you wanted to write a sentence using two hands starting from either side you would have to know each word you wanted to use as well as how much space they would occupy as he's saying this abbott writes and we follow the ink as it coalesces into the symbol for ship grounded and this is a lot better in the script is what i have in my notes because up until somewhere in this montage we just sped through in the script the heptopods have been essentially typing their sentences into an unseen panel and the logograms just appear on the glass it's not this ink that comes out of their body but then while louise and ian are trying to figure out how a sentence about louise giving ian an apple because he is hungry 
Abbott and Costello approach the glass, Louise writes Louise writes so heptopods can see her writing, and Abbott comes up to the glass with two glowing orbs and draws on the glass directly with his hands. So they changed that a lot for the movie, and I like the movie version much better. Because I love that these aliens can control ink and make it come out. It reminds me of the things in the abyss and how they control water. Mm, yeah. Yeah, I think it's kind of cool because they have this octopus squid-like bony presentation, at least what we're able to perceive at this point mm-hmm. in the movie. Yeah. Obviously, we get a lot more, you know. Yeah, we've always the bottom of them so far. Right. In <laughs> Act 3, you get a, a, another revelation about that. But I mean, I, on one hand, I'm like, wow, that's really cool. Because octopi are just, I love octopi, by the way. I'm just like, yeah. they're, they're, <laughs> they're my power animals. So this really oh, kind of. Or, have yeah. you seen the octopus teacher? No, I haven't yet. Oh, it's good. so good. So if you love Octopi, I definitely recommend that. I mean, I'd recommend that documentary anyway, just because it was awesome. But especially, <laughs> <laughs> even just for the visual. I mean, the story is really good too, but just the visuals, mm-hmm. yeah, are cool. <laughs> that's awesome because I wasn't sure if it was like how good it was. So that's good information to know, and I'll check that out. Yeah, yeah. So you know, being a, a lover of the octopi and and squid and whatnot, I just thought it was a really cool kind of homage to something that we find, you know, intelligent, but is unlike us. And I think that's yeah. one of the really cool things about the heptapods is that they're not humanoid. They're not, they're not Ferengi. They're, they, they really do, you know, smack as alien, but also enough that it's referential to us and what we know here on the planet. And it is kind of interesting that they're, you know, excreting a bodily fluid to write, mm-hmm. you know, which is yeah. also kind of interesting as well. Well, yeah, the writing is arguably part of them Mm -hmm. it's not even necessarily writing as we think of it it could be like more they're just thinking out loud so Mm -hmm. it pops out where it's visible that's a nice way of putting it just that holistic thinking or that holistic being where even their writing itself is just themselves i was thinking just as we were talking how humans we think linearly and Mm -hmm. of course that's the cause of a lot of our suffering because in our minds we're either spending our time in the past where we have regrets or we're reliving traumas or we're wishing that we could change things that already happened or we're worried about things that are happening in the future and spend very little time presently focused but if you're thinking holistically and if you are a holistic being then it's going to eliminate a lot of that type of stress and Mm -hmm. suffering (laughs) that's a really good point i didn't think of it quite as like eloquently as you put it in this moment but that was because we're talking a lot about you know the influence of language on thought and, and that's you know very much theorized here and just in thinking about how regret of the past and we get this, I think, in the tail end of, of these minutes where, where Louise kind of stops and she gets up from her desk and there's this intrusion of the scene with her child. Mm-hmm. And in, while on one hand, in it, at this point, in this juncture of the movie, we don't quite understand what's going on. I think, you know, one can perceive it without the other contextual knowledge at the tail end that, you know, there's a, a regret coming in or grief that's coming up for her that's actually disrupting her, her present reality. And so I think it's interesting that we have a sense of even though we perceive time to be, you know, left to right linearly, even mm-hmm. as like in- English speakers, but 
to have a perception of time that can be disrupted by suffering, as, as Sarah was saying, or, you know, yeah. an, an emotional, you know, experience and a memory that comes up within that. Which makes it very difficult for some people to live in the present, as it were, as these aliens seem to. Mm-hmm. And so it it's interesting that the plot hinges on potential warfare when this seems like a more enlightened idea. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The movie spends time on the other part instead of the nice part. Yeah. But with the warfare, it's almost an expected human reaction. Yeah. Because you are remembering all of this idea of negativity of invasion, which is negative, right? Mm-hmm. Like colonizing, oh, invasion, people invading yeah, your that is a horrible thing. So you're going to have a negative connotation with it. But also you're worrying you're here because you don't know what's about to happen. Yeah. So it's an unsurprising reaction, let's say. that. Well, right. This well, could <laughs> be Independence Day and they're going to blow everything up or... Yeah. At best case, this is the day the Earth stood still, and they still might ruin things. (laughs) Just do it nicer. In the script, this moment continues, and Louise gets excited. She says, oh my god, nonlinear orthography. Ian says, wait, what did you say? Because he doesn't know. (laughs) And Colonel Weber, who's not in the room with them, over their radio, says, Dr. Banks outside, which doesn't make any sense because the door is closed. They can't leave. So that might be part of why this scene didn't make it in. Mm. And she looks over at Ian and is like, am I in trouble? He's like, I don't know. And then later she's talking to Weber and he says, explain, what did they write? And she says, it's not what, but how. What we just saw was a kind of magic trick. She shows him a photo of the circular heptapod phrasing. And he starts at two opposite points and completes the sentence by joining them into a kind of loop. But to do this means he has to have the whole thing in his head before he begins. Every detail. The spacing has to be right or else you wind up with fragments, a mess. It's more impressive than that. He wrote the mirror image of it. It's reversed so we can read it. And Colonel Weber says, so they're good at writing? (laughs) He doesn't get it. Louise says, that's a result of the way they think. It's like they know everything they're going to say before they say it. And in in the short story, it's a lot more complicated, but it's kind of fun because it says what Flapper had said was that the heptapod's planet has two moons, one significantly larger than the other. The three primary constituents of the planet's atmosphere were nitrogen, argon, and oxygen. And 15 28ths of the planet's surface, I love that measurement, (laughs) is covered by water. The first words of the spoken utterance translated literally as inequality of size, rocky orbiter, rocky orbiters related as primary to secondary, which is really complicated. I rewound the videotape until the time signature matched the one in the transcription. I started playing the tape and watched the web of samograms being spun out of the inky spider silk. I rewound it and played it several times. Finally, I froze the video right after the first stroke was completed and before the second one was begun. All that was visible on screen was a single sinuous line. Comparing the initial stroke with the complicated sentence, I realized that the stroke participated in several different clauses of the message. It began in the semigram for oxygen, as the determinant that it distinguished it from certain other elements. Then it slid down to become the morpheme of comparison in the description of the two moons' sizes. And lastly, it flared out as the arched backbone of the semigram for ocean. Yet this stroke was a single continuous line, and it was the first one that Flapper wrote. That meant the heptapod had to know the entire sentence would be laid out before it could write the very first stroke. And she continues on that, but I, I love the idea that there, she compares it to calligraphy where you plan the whole spacing and everything else before you even start writing. And so they're writing parts of different parts of the sentence all at the same time. And then there's Ian's version in the narration where he just says a heptapod can write a complex sentence in two seconds, which bad example, the one on screen actually takes 10 seconds. <laughs> he says effortlessly, it's taken us a month to make the simplest reply. Next, as you said, Sarah, expanding vocabulary. Mm. Louise thinks it could easily take another month to be ready for that. 
And we see that math board with the uh, what is your purpose on Earth question written on it as we transition out of that scene. And away from Nian's narration, finally. Yay, it's gone. It was so long. <laughs> it was like four <laughs> minutes just in the middle of the movie. Like, yeah. Shut up. It's just like a combination of just weird new agey with like a PBS special. If he'd been narrating the whole time, a quick jump in in detail would be fine. But this is the only time he narrates. I don't uh, I don't like this part. <laughs> that part is gone now. Yeah. Do you think there would be another way to get across the same information? Well, you leave the scene from the script at least where she explains it to Weber mm. and describes it as a magic trick because that's nice. Because it's over the head of the audience, but at least we understand it's over our head. They're not just telling us it is. Otherwise, unfortunately, no, because no one's going to make that movie with this kind of budget. <laughs> yeah. This is actually a very thoughtful film as far as that goes, but it still has its limits. And these are very complex concepts. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I think that there's at least a dozen articles devoted to what are they talking about here? Mm -hmm. yeah. You know, just because of its complexity. I mean, I hear you. I, I mean, I think there's a, I don't know, a theory in screenwriting that you really don't want to use narration. Yeah. Narration really should. I mean, unless we're talking about, you know, Lady Bridgerton, you know, for some reason, because that's, you know, integral to the, the, the storytelling. You really don't want to use it because it's kind of considered to be kind of a cheap trick mm -hmm. in a sense. And I think that because the, the movie is as complex as it is, I can see why they chose to do it. But you're right. It's, it's long. Four minutes of narration <laughs> thrown in like a grenade in the middle of it. Or if they just had Louise explain this. Right. Right. And she, even if she speaks over our heads, if she explains this, it makes more sense because she's the one narrating at the beginning and at the end and here and there. So is there a reason the man does it? Is this some weird <sighs> mansplaining adjacent <laughs> thing or like? <laughs> I think partly, but I think it's because I think it's because they they decided to include this narration late, probably in the process. Mm. And so then it didn't make sense to have her suddenly give a block of ex explanation. So they put yeah. it on Ian, but at least. Maybe he could have done it like sitting in the room inside explaining to one of the other physicists, you know, a little cheat where it's not narration. I don't know. Or maybe they needed to show him contributing meaningfully in some way. Yes. <laughs> he does, he does way. end up doing very little in the movie. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Which you're saying with the mansplaining, it, him doing very little is kind of good as far as the sexist like gender roles go, because mm -hmm. he's just like the pretty face that is also there. Wait, I don't understand how that's good. <laughs> no. <laughs> well, it's the opposite of the usual, where, like, there's the man scientist, and he has a pretty assistant who, like, writes things down for him and stuff. Now Jeremy Renner gets to be the pretty assistant. That's really funny. I don't think that's better. It, well, it's, <laughs> it's the opposite. It's not necessarily good. Right, exactly. <laughs> it's a pushback. Yeah. Our lead is female. We haven't even talked about that very much. That That's unusual for these kind of movies. Yeah, I think other than Contact... Because that's the only other movie I can think of of having a real lead scientist on something in a, in this kind of science fiction context. Well, I would point out Annihilation also. I'm familiar with that one. <laughs> but yeah, there it's there aren't that many. Mm -mm. Usually it's men, and that's why it's usually more action oriented, and you get fighting as the climax. Right. In this case, potential fighting, which the woman stops. <laughs> and I know the Bechdel test is pretty old and outdated, and there are other ways to measure things in film but i guess this film would pass that because there are scenes with her daughter her and her daughter yeah. <laughs> and we don't know the gender of abbott or costello right because they've named yeah. them for their yeah. own purposes. or if they even have gender exactly we don't know 
So continuing, we get the shell, a shot of the shell over the field, the military camp at the bottom edge, the camera's moving back, and we cut to a hillside with Ian sitting in the back of a truck. This doesn't come up in the movie much, it's more in the script, but he is drawing the shell. We can't see what he's doing, but he is an artist. So in his spare time, he's a physicist, but he also draws. And we see some of his drawings on the wall in a couple scenes where he has drawn the pictures of things. So he's, he's, he's out there being artistic. Then Louise approaches and says, Hey, oh, hey. Louise says, Weber's looking for you. And he says, Yeah, well, why do you think I'm hiding out here? Come on up. (laughs) And he helps her into the truck. She says, Thanks. He says, Nice out here, huh? You know, small talk. Yeah, it's a nice view. Ian says, Away from the noise. You know, I was just thinking about you. As he says this, the camera is behind Louise looking at the shell, not paying attention to him. And he says, you approach language like a mathematician. You know that, right? This is actually a version of the conversation that they have at night in the barracks in the script. So they made it a little less romantic or whatever in the film, I think. Although the hillside sitting of it, like dusk is nice, Wait, yeah, too. Yeah, you had twilight, the skyline, the openness. The but they're tra- in beds romantic. in the script. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know that that's more romantic. <laughs> okay, maybe, yeah. maybe this is more romantic. <laughs> that's more intimate. This is more romantic. Yeah. This is very Americana to me, yeah. too. Yeah. You know? Like, Sitting in the back kind of, of the vehicle. Yeah. Jack and Diane. There's something kind of like teenage about it where, you know, you've got the, you know, Montana landscape behind them and, you know, you get a little bit of the ship over Louise's shoulder. And yeah, they're just, they're, they're chilling, they're chilling awkwardly in the back of a truck. <laughs> and so there is this very American sensibility to this to me. I wonder what you guys kind of thought of that. No, I agree with that. Yeah. That's exactly how I thought about and, it. <laughs> and we don't know much about Ian. I think this idea of him sitting in the, I mean, it's not his pickup. It's the military one, but that he just hangs out on a hill drawing in his pickup is kind of like he's a cowboy of some sort. And then <laughs> Montana, it, it, Gives us maybe a different idea of who he is if we are watching for it. See, that gives me a gr- I missed that. I've watched this movie several times. I totally missed that he's a creative, you know, that, that element of his personality. So yeah, we don't, that- the movie doesn't focus on it much. We, I mean, he, we see him here with a pad, but we don't see what he's doing. He could just be doing math. <laughs> it's just mathing back there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, the movie does set up this dichotomy with, mathematical versus linguistic thinking but then also kind of breaks down that dichotomy because louise is a linguist who thinks like a mathematician and Mm -hmm. who diagrams things and puts things on the board just that visual of the whiteboard in the middle of all the mathematical equations Mm -hmm. you see kind of that overlap of those styles of thinking and you have ian as a mathematician but one who's also a creative right so. so i wish it showed a little more of that in the film is that he's drawing I do find it interesting that he says you approach language like a mathematician, and that's the compliment that he's mm-hmm. saying you think like I do, so that's a good thing. <laughs> like I recognize the me in you. Honestly, people do that in relationships a lot. They yeah. like find something about someone that reflects themselves because we're all narcissistic to a degree, and we're like, I get that, you know. <laughs> well, see, he he went into this whole situation wanting to use math to talk to aliens instead. He uses math to talk to a woman. <laughs> Which is the same thing. Explain. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to need you to expound on that. Not really, but it's the men are from Mars, women are from Venus thing. Even he's about to say, like, he's single because he doesn't know how to communicate. That's so annoying. Oh, it is. (laughs) But it's also the kind of thing you put in a movie. It's like a dumb metaphor. 
He's like, yeah, he can he can talk to her because she thinks like a mathematician. Yeah, I mean, he's already established that he believes that he has the the superior purpose here. When they when mm-hmm. she first gets on the the helicopter and he kind of lays it down, and like, you know, I'm I'm here for a good reason. Why are you here? And so I, I feel like this is a little bit of that capitulation. Yeah, that actually you're the one who's saving our asses right now, and I'm I'm willing to in my in my male ego way at least breach that a little bit and there's actually quite a bit of i think vulnerability from him in this even though i think he he has a like i was saying a a strong sense of his superiority Mm -hmm. intellectually but maybe this scene is their way of showing him giving that up a little because he helped her up in the truck and he's Mm -hmm. trying to talk to her just maybe badly (laughs) yeah i mean he's not intellectually superior they're as far as we know, no. intelligent with yeah. different types of intelligence that they draw on primarily. And they don't even draw on that entirely. Well, they, they cut his whole physics lesson from the short story out. So we only see her intelligence being used, really. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think all we've really seen is is he's along for the ride, mm-hmm. you know, as, as much as I've been able to tell from this edit of it anyway. But that's a really interesting, going back to you talking about like him helping her into the truck. And that's kind of a chivalrous thing. It wasn't like, Hey, you know, like struggle with that girl. Like, <laughs> <laughs> you know, climb on in. He's, he's kind of like, it's kind of sweet, you know, like I'm going to help you into the back of the truck. And that's kind of a, a peace offering, kind of a tender moment. It's a little flirty in my opinion. She does say she'll take that as a compliment. And he says, yeah, well, it is. As I watch you steer around these communication traps that I didn't even know existed, it's like, what? I guess that's why I'm single. (laughs) And Louise says, trust me, you can understand communication and still end up single. And he laughs. This conversation does continue in the script. He says, I find that hard to believe. Louise studies Ian's face to see if he's being sarcastic. He's not. This is honesty. And then Louise says, my father worked for a big energy company. They'd relocate him every year to come to some new country, and I went with him. He used to say learning all those foreign tongues would make me the center of every party. But you know what people say when you're 16 and fluent in seven languages? You're smart. Mm. And Ian says, oh no, smart is bad. And Louis says, people are so afraid of smart. Ian says, no, they don't like it. Louis says, right, about now you're usually outside, staring at the ship. What are you looking for? And Ian says, when I was six, my parents bought me a globe, one of those big ones on an iron floor stand. This was the same year I dressed up as a wilderness explorer for Halloween. My room was papered with hand-drawn maps of my neighborhood. I studied every inch of that globe, and it was the saddest moment of my childhood. It had all been explored already, claimed, named, and labeled, top to bottom. My whole purpose in life taken away. Next Halloween, I was an astronaut. Hmm. And Louise says to boldly go where no one has gone before. And Ian said, and is that too much to ask? I spent the last 30 years staring at the sky, trying to find a way out there. Now it's here, and I don't know how I feel about it. Because you might finally get to explore the galaxy? Because the heptapods may have already explored it. He laughs. She smiles. It's nice. Yeah. <laughs> Can we get a Hallmark card that says that? <laughs> A couple of things, though. Isn't it a cliche, that first part, that's like, oh, I can't believe you're still single. Like, guys just say that to girls all the time. Oh, yeah. And then that part that you read is interesting because we have her, who knows seven languages at 16, and I feel like that's definitely gendered because if you're a 16 year old girl then you're not supposed to be smart you're definitely not getting very much positive recognition for being smart most of the time and if you're a guy you just want to go explore and conquer things and Mm -hmm. you're sad that you can't go rape and pillage the world because everyone else already did that before (laughs) yeah 
<laughs> just a lot of this conversation the script is super cliche and just this idea the, the cliche even that if you can't communicate quote unquote that your relationship is going to to suffer one we're always communicating yeah. even if we're not speaking but then also you can understand something academically like communication theory but it's much more difficult to respond effectively in the moment so even people who are communication scholars aren't necessarily going to respond perfectly in every relationship scenario or be relationship and friendship free of problems. That's not how it works. Yeah, I think there's also a point here about connecting to other people and that there's that to what you're saying, a misunderstanding that if you can communicate, you can connect. Yes. And I, yeah, I, I think that this is actually, uh, I, and I agree with you. As much as I think there's some good stuff in that dialogue that would have, I think, beefed out their characters a bit. Especially his. It, yeah. yeah, especially his. I can see why they cut it, mm -hmm. you know, in the context of that. I mean, not only because it's uh, there, there's some tropes in there, but it doesn't necessarily push plot along, no. you know? Right. And so continuing in the film, Louise talking says, I feel like everything that happens in there comes down to the two of us. And Ian says, yeah, that's a good thing though, right? You and I? Hmm. Have you seen the Jokers that we're working with? Thank God I've got you. So this furthers what started in their conversation where they first connected in front of the heptapods, where we're kind of solidifying that it's us against the world kind of thing. Like mm -hmm. they're not diametrically opposed as a mathematician and a linguist, but it's becoming a both of them yeah, yeah against everyone else. <laughs> Which then we cut from that to... Alien Crisis Day 25. Which goes back to the teenage <laughs> romance great. thing, because every like great teenage romance is some version of it's you and I against the world. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, good point. And so, yeah, we cut to news. NRCN News, a uh, shot of Venezuela with soldiers shooting at people. Sierra Leone, there's a crowd running from gunfire. And the United Kingdom, there's a man spray painting Save Our Species on a wall. And when he turns around, he's got a Guy Fox mask. A la V for Vendetta, another film reference, uh, or, or just Guy Fox, which this isn't that important to this film, but I looked it up just to make sure I got the details right. The gunpowder plot in 1604 to 1605, Guy Fox tried to blow up the Houses of Parliament, which I didn't know some of the details. They put explosives in and then Parliament didn't show up to like on time. So the explosives didn't get to do anything. And they planned to assassinate the king. There were 13 conspirators, but all we remember is Guy Fox because some reason so november 5th is guy fox day and it's also v for vendetta it was v's big look that he gave everyone at the end of the film it's common now with antifa people wear those masks and the news person says tonight the first photograph of the aliens goes viral <laughs> and we get a photo of the heptapod which isn't a very good one on the screen biological contamination is a major risk factor at the montana site we get aerial footage of tanks blocking the highway so say environmental pressure groups and we're behind ian watching this footage there is a drawing of the shell on the wall, which I assume he drew. 800,000 march on Washington to protest the government's handling of the crisis. All this and more special coverage. I like the juxtaposition here of their relationship bonding. And you just have the sweet romantic date and you have the mathematician and the linguist just trying to figure everything out. Cut from the relationship bonding from those who are actually in the trenches communicating with the heptapods to what the news shows, which is an extremely violent version of 
events, which mm-hmm. doesn't accurately reflect what's happening. And is on also the base only three of the twelve locations, so that's not even a majority. What do you guys think would happen <laughs> if if we actually had several bean ships come down and park it for a while here? Do you find that this portrayal would be accurate to what would happen? Unfortunately, yes. Yeah, I was going to say fairly accurate, Mm. yes, that people would, one, start freaking out, protesting. Not that a protest is freaking out. Separate from that, protests are are great and necessary sometimes. But I think, yeah, you would see a a lot of this, especially with the news and with this right-wing, you know, Richard Riley, where everybody essentially is going to have their own take and be pushing their own narrative and that take is almost always a reductive one Mm -hmm. (laughs) it's it's like we've seen the crowd on the highway earlier in the film we don't see them now because the tanks i'm not sure if it's supposed to be this highway but it's kind of like the crowded road in Mm -hmm. contact which we've already mentioned this episode is there's people out there panicking there's people that just want to get in there and see things closer There's people that are being, like, we've already had a cult that burned themselves in this film on the news. And you'd have religious people. You'd have people responding in all these different ways and possibly all going to the location to do so, which isn't going to mix very well Mm. because you get people with very different responses getting in very close quarters. I've seen this movie a few times now. And so I think it had, I think, even more poignancy given a lot of the political unrest that we've had in, in the U.S., and seeing the results here, the marching, getting a, a very right-wing extremist take that we have, uh, like you're saying, with the, the, the religious cult burning themselves. Mm-hmm. So I felt like this was the, the accuracy of the response, I thought, was, was even more so, even more believable. Whereas I, I think I take this even like when I look at like Watchmen, where I'm like, oh, yeah, you know, okay, unrest, okay, cool. But I think when you actually like live through a profound amount of chaos from the the pre and post, it, it really takes on a different meaning. And it's like, oh, wow, this is actually, I think, how it would go down. I think this is reflected accurately. Yeah. Watching it again in a, I don't want to say post-COVID, post-political turmoil, because we're definitely still in the middle of post-2020 at least. <laughs> yeah. You can call it post-2020. <laughs> sure. Yeah, I would agree with that. It was like watching a lot of what was in Arrival happen in real life and in real mm-hmm. time. Yeah. And we don't see a lot of politicians in this movie, but they're going to get stuck doing nothing and you're going to get a bunch of executive orders that don't get much done. So it's going to be the military doing everything, at least in this country. Yeah. And in this, and in the film, that's how they have China set up. It's not the Chinese president that's making decisions. It's a general because he's the one with the authority in this situation. So unfortunately, we we just have to hope the aliens who come are nice. Yes. Because otherwise, people like Richard Riley will inspire. Well, this they do anyway. Richard Riley inspires. We see Lasky sitting around watching it with another guy. I think his name is Combs. We haven't really seen him much yet. And we get Richard Riley on the TV. His website has an assault rifle above his play screen. And I love his other headlines are, uh, let's see, Save Our Species, a Richard Riley blog. Aliens invade, government is asleep at the wheel. Other headlines say director cozies up to something. Homeland closed, impotent government stands aside, welcomes invaders. And I could not figure out what this meant, but for some reason his clock says that the time is 42.12. Huh. I have no idea what that is a reference to. 
it might just be 12 12 and it's a weird angle on the screen or something and it just looked like a four but i don't know Hmm. and if it was 12 12 that would fit this film with all the 12s that we've Mm -hmm. talked about so far (laughs) and uh, the rifle over the screen when we see later in a close-up is an ad for lancer perfection in design is their motto and there's an ad for a handgun mg with the slogan that says a girl's best friend (laughs) so his website's fun and then he, what he actually says is first contact with whoever it is inside that thing. And who's running the show? The government. That's right, folks. The same government who ruined our health care and bankrupted our military. Which I don't recall that happening. <laughs> <laughs> Look at these people. Most of them don't even have guns. We could be facing a full... He, and he shows a shot of scientists. <laughs> scientists. <laughs> scientists aren't strapped. We're all in yeah. trouble. <laughs> <laughs> we could be facing a full-scale invasion. Our president's willing to sit back and let them waltz in and take our country. We are falling asleep at the wheel, people. You know what I'm talking about. When It's just a ship sitting in Montana. <laughs> wow. Yeah. What's so interesting, I was thinking, like, Obama was president when this was made. So just the statement, our president's willing to sit back and let them waltz in and take our country. This whole idea of, oh, like, yeah. immigration and people being in your space or mm-hmm. your place. Yeah. That's a whole other level to this rant here. <laughs> Which aliens often are. Metaphor for yeah. other races coming. Yeah. That's the whole point. I guess I would be a little bit concerned. I mean, I understand, like, you have so many paradigm busting things would happen if you actually had a bunch of ships come down. But the next thought Mm -hmm. is if you've got a a race of beings who have mastered space travel, I I don't know if an AK is going to help things. Right. (laughs) You know? And that's a point about the gun control debate now. That you're going to use your AK-47 to stand up to the government. Okay, good luck with that. Right. I'm pretty sure they'll eviscerate you in a second. Yes, they really you've seen want the guns to. they have. Yeah. yeah. They've got a bigger budget than we do. Yes. Yeah. Uh, and Riley continues, I know you do. What if the smartest thing we could do right now would be to give them a show of force? And this is when Lasky looks over at Combs, who's laying on the bed all listening along. I'm talking about a shot across the bow. I want to hear what you think. Caller number one, you're on the air. What do you think about all this? And then we cut to Louise. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) She's not caller number one. But also this monologue through a post like January 6, 2020 Mm. Capitol attack, where essentially that's what he's doing is calling people to violence. Mm -hmm. No, no. He's going to insist later a shot across the bow is a metaphor. (laughs) Right. Yeah. (laughs) A show of force. That means just vote them out. All of these guns are just metaphors. Mm -hmm. I I don't know. (laughs) But yeah, the juxtaposition to Louise taking notes, studying, doing systematic research while the shock jocks are bloviating on things they don't understand is really interesting. (laughs) Mm-hmm. So Louise has headphones on. She's working. She is the logogram she's working on has heptapod at the left. Two other segments, and I don't know what they are. Nearby is the one for Earth and the one for Ship Grounded, and the unidentified logogram number five, which I've referenced several times. She puts a post-it on the paper, and the angle changes, so we don't get to see what she writes, which is sad for me because I obsess. <laughs> we see Ian working. And then back to Louise, and she seems to get a headache, puts her hand to her nose, turns around before we hear a voice, Hannah, saying, what's this word? And then Louise turns back and removes her headphones, and she gets up and then sits back down in a chair in the corner. And we get a nice shot past Ian of her and the other thing. They're apparently in the same little tinted area apart from everyone else now, because they've both taken off their suits. Uh, He looks over, and Louise says, planet. Although, not Louise in the room, Louise. Somewhere. And then we cut to a kid's book, which I cannot figure out if this was a real kid's book. That bothered me, too. 
um, <laughs> the, it says the blue planet and the left, the left page has a girl in water and a snorkel on and a boy on a raft. And I, I really wanted it to be something they made for this movie because of that visual. She's in the water doing things yeah. and he's just laying there. In the raft. <laughs> and then the right page has earth and the page turns. There's kids in chairs looking in, up in a planetarium and it says a shower of stars. And we hear Louise say that's like, um, the earth is a planet. And then Hannah says, want to see my project for Miss Garriott's class? And we're there in the scene with them. I don't know if this is a reference, but I looked up Garriott just in case. There was a NASA astronaut named Owen Garriott, who is famous because in 1973, he pranked NASA by playing audio of his wife talking from Skylab. And they thought she had stowed away and somehow gotten on the station. Oh, my God. (laughs) I thought that was pretty good. Good job, Owen Garriott. We get a shot of Hannah. Louise touched her nose and says, yeah, little nose. Hannah says, we had to make up our own TV show if we had one. And she gets her drawing, which is a man and a woman and a bird in a cage. And Louise says, and who are these two people? Hannah says, that's you and dad. The show is called Mommy and Daddy Talk to Animals. Now, in the script, the title is Hannah and Mommy and Daddy Save the World, which maybe makes it a little more on the nose. I like this version better, even though it is specifically a bird in a cage, which we have seen already. Yeah, I like the bird in the cage part. So we're starting to... It's a recurring symbol. Yeah. <laughs> and we're starting to get references to the fact that it's the future. Louise says, oh, well, it's lovely. Okay. And we see Hannah and this segment ends. So anything else <laughs> <laughs> on this segment or the film? Well, I actually have a question for you guys, but I don't know if, if addressing this now is appropriate because it kind of... Are we presuming people have seen the movie and, you know, they... they there are no they, spoilers because uh, time is not linear. Okay, yeah. <laughs> rad. Okay. Um, my question is, it's it's a bit of like a weird kind of moral ethical one. Do you think she should have told Ian about what was going to happen with her daughter? Well, she does. That's why he leaves her. I know. But like, do you think that she should have done that? Mm. I think she... It might not be whether or not she should. I think she had to. Because if they get together as a couple... She would have to tell him that she had, like, what happened with her and the aliens, like, what was different for her than it was for him, and how she was changed by it. And so he would know that she can see things from the future. So she can't wait until their daughter dies and then say, oh, yeah, I knew that was going to happen. She has to tell him ahead of time. Hmm. That makes sense. It would be a lot to carry by yourself, and mm-hmm. then that would be a different problem, because are you keeping and withholding essentially a huge part of yourself because she's profoundly changed by the fact that that's how she now experiences Mm -hmm. things and how she now thinks so she would be withholding one of the biggest parts of herself if she didn't also and this is a weird way to think about it she can't not tell him because she tells it right because that's how time works she remembers it the way she remembers it because that's the way it's going to happen because it's already done but even then she has to justify it we've already seen when they first talked to Abbott and Costello, Abbott and Costello backed out of the room before writing anything. They know the time thing already. They're already trying to like see time differently, but they still had a conversation before they wrote. So there's still room for negotiating the present, even though you have knowledge of the future. So it's not like fate and destiny where she has to make the choices she has to make, but she does have to make the choices she has to make. Yeah, at a very basic level, the dichotomy is... The most basic philosophical one, I think, which is free will versus determinism. Mm-hmm. How much control do we have? How do we? <laughs> which do which we the movie doesn't make as clear as the story where it's like she kind of remembers things from the future, but it's kind of like memories from the past where they're not always in your head. You have to focus on them to think about mm-hmm. certain things. And so she can kind of live in the present. 
even though she's been changed a lot. The movie doesn't make it as clear what the distinction is. And so maybe she's stuck in all these modes at all the time once she's been altered. Yeah, I mean, that's a question about how that arises for her mm-hmm. and, and cuts in. Yeah, um, we've we've seen it cut in. We just don't know that it's cutting in. Right. And, and later on, we see that she's actually waiting for it to cut in yeah. and kind of focusing on it to save the... Yeah, the climax of the film, she does it on purpose. Yeah, yeah. She's, she's, she's waiting for the information, literally. Which is an interesting loop for, for future times. Mm-hmm. I mean, I just, I, I know it's already happened, but I, I would struggle with telling somebody that it was going to happen, yeah. you know, and, and burdening him, which I think is his take that he didn't want to know, you know, it was just like, he, he didn't want to know it, you know, he couldn't handle it. And that would kind of be my concern too. Then I wonder how is it for him? Cause now he does know the child does exist, but he doesn't even, he's not even there with her. Mm-hmm. So it's like, there's still that child that he was responsible for left and is going to die. Uh, I don't know at what point he leaves in the movie. Like how old, I don't remember if we can see how old Hannah is at the time. Yeah, I guess that's a distinction of, you know, are you leaving the relationship with Louise or are you leaving the family? And that was a little bit foggy on, like I can see him leaving her because that's kind of, you know, wow. Well, and here we see Hannah is still drawing. This is Hannah, age eight, mm-hmm. drawing a picture of the two of them together. So, although I don't remember if it's in the next segment, but in the script, her mother says something to her about she doesn't have to like act like everything's fine. Like they're already apart. Mm. I don't remember if that makes it into the film yet because I haven't looked at the next segment. <laughs> Molly, remind the listeners where they can hear more from you. Well, I am uh, a part of the the Movies by Minutes crew, so I co-hosted two other podcasts, uh, Cabin Minute Cast, which is about Cabin in the Woods, and Escape from New York Minute, uh, which is about Escape from New York. And so you can look those up online and, and find me. And then I'm also uh, a graphic designer, and, and I do kind of fun... I mean, if you've got little kids at home, you probably don't want to buy these mugs because they have a lot of swear words on them. But I also make <laughs> like fun mugs at uh, Snicker and Sass. So it's snicker-n-sass.com. Uh, and since I already referenced it, I'll mention Annihilation Minute, which is the time this episode goes up. We'll be really close to ending with only a handful of episodes left. Ah! Which is awesome and sad. It is. Yeah, it's bittersweet. <laughs> If you want to hear me discuss both the past, so stories from my past that helped make me me, and also discuss more of the socio and political goings on in the present, I kind of jump back and forth through time on my own show. So (laughs) can hear life as a playlist wherever you listen to podcasts and follow my show on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Yeah, that just happened. Thank you for listening. Follow the show on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at 5-Minute Arrival. Or go to lemmingdrops.com for links. I used to think this was the beginning of your story.